0: Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. It's time again to talk about the military's personnel system. This might not be as sexy a topic as pointy-nosed fighter planes, or a $13 billion aircraft carrier that can neither launch nor recover aircraft yet, but it is a much more important subject. People, ideas, hardware, in that order John Boyd taught. This has always been the guiding principle behind the military reform movement from its very first days in the 1970s. During that time period, in the years immediately following Vietnam, the Army and Marine Corps both underwent a reevaluation of their warfighting doctrines. Both were heavily influenced by the ideas of John Boyd and the concept of maneuver warfare. Rather than the old industrial age firepower attrition doctrine, which focused on the physical destruction of the enemy, both services adopted a doctrine meant to collapse enemy systems to bring about their defeat in a much more efficient manner. The degree to which this doctrinal transformation has been successful is the subject of much debate within the services. Many people, inside and outside of the services, believe neither has adequately institutionalized the kind of organizational and administrative changes necessary to take full advantage of a maneuver warfare doctrine. One of the central concepts necessary to successfully put maneuver warfare into practice is mission command, or to use the German term, Auftragstaktik. The army defines this as... The exercise of authority and direction by the commander using mission orders to enable disciplined initiative within the commander's intent to empower agile and adaptive leaders in the conduct of unified land operations. In plain English, this means a commander will tell his subordinates what he wants done, but leaves it up to them to determine how to get it done. That sounds like a simple enough concept, but to put it into practice, the entire culture of the organization needs to be optimized to support it, Unfortunately, the military's personnel system is still set up for the old methods of rigid orders requiring little initiative on the part of most leaders. One man has dedicated his entire career to pushing the concept of mission command and working for the kinds of reforms necessary to see its full realization. His name is Don Vandergriff. He served as an armor officer in the army and following his retirement from the service, has spent decades teaching and lecturing on adaptive leadership and mission command. He is currently working in Afghanistan, where he is an advisor and a teacher for the Afghan Army. I sat down with him and, just as a warning, his three chihuahuas and pet parrot Elvis at his home while he was on leave recently to discuss the military's personnel system, mission command, and his latest book project. I took up
1: this mantle because I see
0: a system that
1: contradicts itself. It preaches values like honesty, moral courage, It preaches we want the truth, we want trust, but it has a personnel system that, based on theories and assumptions made in the turn of the last century, 19th, 20th century, and HR policies that came out of of the 20s and 30s under a guy named Alfred Chandler, uh, it it advocates just the opposite of what what it promotes or what it pushes for. So you have people that are torn between what I call... Torn between what is right and what they're told to do to get promoted Uh, I've seen that my whole career it happened to me I told the truth to a a colonel uh, in a out brief where my unit won all the awards and he wanted me and several guys to lie and several of the company commanders lied uh, to him to satisfy him I would not do that and he started uh, yelling at me I refused to back down and because of that he gave me a bad center what was called a center mass officer effectiveness report or efficiency report for three months which at the time was a bad place because i came out of the Gulf war with a really good efficiency report as a tank company commander and then i get a bad one and that was called a degrading performance over telling them the truth and then the other irony is for twenty-something months, twenty-eight months after that, I got four more reports as the best commander in the brigade and the system said, oh, you screwed up here in this three month report, so it doesn't matter what you do after that. That affected me and my my wife Lorraine, I was going to get out and go to Knoxville and go back to school and be a police or state trooper and uh, do something noble. My wife said, why are you getting out because everyone else is kicking the can down the road you, you are a soldier. You love being a soldier. Why don't you fight this? So I began my work. And what was surprising, and also, I thought I, as I would dig, I wouldn't find it a lot. Because I was brought up like you were. Oh, the system's great. We have the greatest military in the world. So we must have a great system. You know, we defeated the Nazis and the Japanese. And then as I dig, it was not hard to find all these reports, not written by uh, Sour Apples... Are malcontents, but written by think tanks and written by the military itself that said its personnel system was pretty bad and pretty backwards. One report recently written by the Science Board in 2012 said the biggest obstacle to adaptability is the military personnel system. And uh, so I see that all the time now. So I've been fighting it now since 19, uh, 1994, 93, since my first article came out in Army Magazine about it. And then I started writing books in the early uh, of this last century, this, this uh, century, new century. Uh, because I just think the only reason we keep this personnel system, and I believe this honestly, is the eagles of the sen- senior leaders. They made the system. they was great. And when uh, uh, the, la- the latest uh, secretary of the personnel that you and I work with, uh, Brad Carlson, pushed for it, they pushed back, back especially about up or out. Despite, again, but despite the evidence, they push back on it because they made it so it must be a good system. When in fact, there's a lot more evidence that says it's a horrible system and very little system saying it's a good, a good system.
0: So I know in, in my experience just writing about this issue, the biggest challenge that I always find is trying to make people, the public, a non-military audience, understand the importance of this issue. And, and that is it's just a big challenge, I think, I, I, I find, because I understand it the way, the way that you do. Um, but can you explain why is it that, that the citizens out there should care about how the military personnel system works? It's a,
1: a great question because I deliberate on that, that question all the time. Uh, I ask myself because, first of all I'm going to start off with a simple statement that's hard to define. It's the tangibles over the intangibles. The public likes things on the media and the uh, mainstream media that are things they can see, they can touch, they can spend money on, they can measure easily. Intangibles, leadership, character, uh, moral courage are not easy to measure. They can be measured scientifically now, we know that, but they're not that easy. So if it's not easy, we're not going to do it because it's not efficient. So uh, the public should care about this thing the public should care about this because it's the foundation for everything we do. I'll give you an example. So I have total trust in the president and Secretary Mattis that they're going to, and, and H.R. McMaster, who's a friend of mine, that they're going to come out with a great strategy for Afghanistan. But I keep telling them, I wrote letters to all of them, saying that as long as you have this incredible turnover rate with personnel in Afghanistan, the turnover rate, by the way, is worse than Vietnam, is you're never gonna, have, no strategy can solve the problem because no one takes ownership of it. And this is the personnel system. The personnelists are retired colonels and generals that are what we call in the Army Adjutant Generals. I don't know what they call them in the Marine Corps personnelists, but they become GSs and SESs and they are mantle holders for the old way. And they wait out the current regime by changing the names but not the substance. Uh, but the public needs to know this because all this money we're spending is countless as long as we continue to, our cult or military culture is founded on out-of-date assumptions and theories. These theories saying that personal ambition is better than personal service or selfless service, that uh, the up-or-out system was built in 1947 in order to get out people by the time they're 42 years old because it said their lives are short. Uh, They need to be able to have some kind of money because they're not going to be able to do anything else. And that, again, personal ambition, uh, self-serving personal ambition, uh, based on the theories of an Alfred Chandler. He was the HRC first expert in the 20s and 30s, uh, who wrote several books that later became the textbooks for the first human resource people that went to uh, the universities in the northeast for the human resources command both marine and army i traced all these guys what textbooks they used and it said oh this system now while violate the very things that we don't want in a leader we'll get the best at the top because even though we're scared of them or we're worried about them their value system they're going to be the first ones that they're most talented and that's what we have today you know with exceptions because i know some great one stars and two stars that are uh and a four star that are great individuals and they made it because they own merit but most of the people i met are all self-serving and I'll, I'll stand by that because the system promotes that so the public needs to know that all this money the only reason we get by is because we spend all this money but ironically all this money keeps us from being innovative because it protects the
0: status quo so that's what they need to know so in your estimation, what does an effective military personnel system look like? An effective
1: military personnel system is totally opposite of what we have today. So, the, the current personnel system works on four pillars. The culture, you look at the culture as a floor, and then there's four pillars that hold us up, the, the, the base. And that is the upper out system, founded in 1916 by the Navy. And they found out, unless they have a bloated officer system, it doesn't work, and it promotes careerism a bloated officer corps for mobilization for World War III, which was developed by George Marshall and and Eisenhower and Bradley in testimonies in 46-47 that said, we have to maintain a lot of officers in case we have to expand. Because in the 1938, 39-40, and 41-42, we had to fire several hundred, several thousand colonels and generals that were too old. Uh, too out of date uh, to try to catch up with mechanized warfare. So we're going to want to do that again. So we're going to keep a bloated officer corps and over the last 60 years, the bureaucracies built up around them to justify them. But the, they were willing to let people sit around to wait for expansion. The f- third uh, pillar is a centralized control of everything, which runs in counter to, to optics tactic or mission command, where I want to decentralize as many decisions as possible and empower people. So I'm going to and what happens to these boards even though now they're on computer automation and so forth is we tend to promote the people that look the most like us so the centralization the centralization came along in 1976 in order to integrate african-americans and women into the force I have nothing against that i want the best person in the job i don't care if it was all women i just want the best person but what happened was we had to centralize all this because if we don't not enough of these groups will be selected and the fourth thing is a force structure that is top-heavy. The headquarters are created in order to keep all these people. But what it, in effect, does is slows down, as we know by John Board, our UDALU. So we have to eliminate that. And so we have to look at what I do is extensively look at stints in military history. Water organizations are very good at mission command, which gives you incredible speed of decision even in the automation age I would say I would argue even more because in the automation age all you're doing is simply laying technology over the old uh, template of control uh, so let's look at the Israelis for example up through 73 because they started patterning themselves after us until the 2006 invasion of Lebanon taught them otherwise which was an officer system that was bloated an officer system that was centrally controlled an officer system that was promoted on Oprah out and uh one for all efficiency reports the oer system no other systems used where you use exams you use uh, uh systems that let your people say oh they're doing a good job uh, they use one system that's that oer and ncoer now because the, the nco corps argues this is just affected by careerism as the officer corps is but they use that one system where one person could put one slightly less then, perfect remark about you, the hidden code, and you're gone. We cannot have that system. We're not using our talent very well by having that system. So, what we've got to do is we've got to create a system that eliminates all these pillars. So, what's the counter to, the, to those pillars? Well, we create a very tough accession system. We don't, instead of having the 15 to 17% of officers we do now, we go for 25 to 3% officers, a cadre based system. There's two types of mobilization systems to build in case of war. There's the cadre system, and there's one that we use, which is a mobilization-based, top-heavy system where we have all these officers-in-waiting that expand in case of war. The cadre system relies on a very, very prof- extremely professional, small core of cadre that no matter if they're expanded or not, they're very good at what they do, good at higher ranks and so forth because the time is taken to educate them in a session. Uh, analyze them, evaluate them at the lower ranks. So we do that first of all. Second thing, we pl- we flatten our organization. We currently use 10 levels of command in our military. This 10 level of, of command in our military is no different than what Napoleon used in his Napoleonic Wars because of techn- lack of technology, which made sense then. Uh, we have 10 levels now, so we need to flatten that organization. I prefer seven or six levels of command uh, and less ranks. We have the same rank system that's been used basically again since the Napoleonic War. You know, private all the way up to general officer, uh, lord or whatever they were called then, uh, marshal and so forth. Uh, we need to flatten that out too. We currently keep this system though, by the way, for careerism. We keep the force structure for careerism so we provide jobs for people. For example, the Army loves engineer brigades, ADA brigades military intelligence brigades they have no battlefield function but they have a promotion personnel function okay so and that is again all driven by alfred chandlers and some other theorists like frederick taylorism uh that saw that ambition was the only way to get talent not self-service because they didn't they couldn't measure it, they couldn't understand it so we need to do that uh we need to do a way of up or out and develop what's called upper stay uh upper perform is Mark Lewis, who wrote some good papers on this 16 years ago. Uh, Mark just left the uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Office for Special Operations and Training, but Mark wrote some very good papers uh, 16, 15 years ago on this upper perform system, where you either move up or you have to perform, Uh, meaning that you had captains in Israeli and army officer majors that really performed well at tactical level. They didn't want to go anywhere else. But as long as they stayed physically fit, mentally fit, proficient at the evolving face of war, they were, they were allowed to stay there. Competitively, uh, because they had a small officer corps, you could do that. Uh, they had exams. They had performance in the field, field exercise, and now we have simulations. Uh, by the way, our system is very afraid of free play war games. Why? Because it exposes the careerist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we had Millennium Challenge in 2002 uh, where uh, Ben Riper kicked the crap out of the Navy and they had to repeat it the admirals and the generals were absolutely afraid of a free play war game system but in the 1900s and 18 early 1900s and 1800s the germans had every year they had free play war games called corps exercises army exercises with judges where people's evaluations were determined on performance every year you knew at the end of the year or at the end of your cycle of your three five year command cycle that you were going to have this exercise and your unit had to perform win or lose uh didn't have to perform on a checklist, but just how outcomes were. They had that exercise, and now today with modern simulation, we can do the same thing we fail to do. We even use simulations in war games to validate things we wanted to say, like doctrine. So we are cheating the American. That's another reason American people need to know about this personnel system, but no one in the mainstream media has the gumption or the research to study it, even though guys like myself and Tim Kane have written extensively on it. There's a lot of books before we came along that are on it there's not a lack of resources on it but it's ignored because it's an intangible sadly and it's ignored because we have this big propaganda machine in the military that says every general is a great hero and every general is the greatest thing since sliced bread and the american public uh, and i don't blame them say it's the most popular professional uh, organization in the united states when in fact it doesn't deserve that uh so you see all the scandals today by the way uh, uh, generals cheating, uh, cheating with their wives, generals doing all kind of wild stuff with credit cards, travel, uh, f- so forth. Uh, so, uh, but that gets minimized. That comes along with a system where those people that make it it's a cutthroat system, it's a backstabbing system. They make it and they think they're basically so powerful, nothing can touch them. We need a system where they're always evaluated, but they're evaluated on their ability to make combat decisions, right. and our schools don't do it. And our exercises don't do it
0: right and, well and i also find the a, a challenge explaining this to civilians is that there's this popular conception that our superior technology is what makes the difference in in warfare but you and i and a whole lot of other people know that that is not the case that it's people ideas and then hardware So that's always a big challenge trying to explain this. The uh, so you mentioned in the in the course of that you Uh mentioned mentioned mission command and Alfstroem's tactic, which for the for the audience out there it's uh, Uh in the most basic terms it's a military commander Uh who is telling his people uh, what he wants done, Uh not how to do it. The myth is
1: if you adapt optics tactic, a German term that wasn't even really well known. It was mentioned after 1888, but uh, but it, it, it basically says we interpret it as mission tactics or mission command, but the real interpretation is empowering people. But before you empower people, you prepare people, and that's an extensive, intangible education system that exists. You were at my workshop on how to do it. The people that took my workshop in 2015 and before that loved it but the military hierarchy even though it made them look good did not like it because again it's all about control with them Uh, so optics tactic even in the 21st century even the age of data precision weapons that can fly through windows drones all this stuff we have found out we're fighting a guy in afghanistan and iraq that doesn't have all that he doesn't have all that technology and we're having a hard time Your only way you're going to beat these people is you have to develop your people on how to make rapid decisions in the context of the commander's intent, three levels higher, in the context of what he has available to him or her, uh, in the context of what they're supposed to do as the outcome, and then do it. We don't like that because there's so many—the scrutiny of Congress is on so many of the tangibles and so many of the social agenda versus what's important, which is winning— okay Uh, so people are constantly scrutinized they're constantly brief constantly mandatory training instead of focusing on what's very hard which is developing people that can be adapted and make good decisions under pressure and we can do it we have a way to do it but we avoid it modern uh learning science says we can do it and the research that i've done and you've been part of uh yourself dan says we know how to do it but we ignore it because again do we really want to accept people like that into a system that's built for just the opposite, as I explained earlier about the personnel system, which is built to make a conformist, to make someone that's very really risk-averse, that's someone that will keep the current status quo going? No. So it runs counter to that, even though history has proven the opposite, that we need people like that, we want people like that. And they aren't, they aren't a danger, as the myth says, to society or to the country that runs. As a matter of fact, they're very honorable people that... Are not about their selves, but about the service and the outcome.
0: All right, so you recently have uh, released a book on Mission Command. It's a collection of essays. Can you, can you explain that and describe that to us? I'm very
1: proud of it. It's a group of great individuals that are members of the Mission Command, Developing for Mission Command Facebook page, which now we almost have 2,000 members that run from sergeant up to some general officers and very some noted military historians. But the essays itself are 13 of us, including myself, that represent the Army, the Navy, the Norwegian Navy, and the British Army. And my task to the group was uh, write about Mission Command, what you feel that we should talk about with Mission Command, what it means to you. And I gave them the the Torbjorn Chicago-style guidelines and things like that. And a a Navy uh, lieutenant, i.e. captain, uh, Stephen Weber and I are the editors, And right now it's being cleared through DOD, you know, for security reasons, because nine of the 13 members have security clearances, and then we need to get it cleared so everything's valid. Uh, Though that we didn't put anything uh, on security uh, that requires a security clearance to read. It's mainly opinion pieces, but we still did it right. Anyway, the book comes should be out any day now. Uh, It's about 252 pages, uh, 12 essays. And uh, the essays all deal with some aspect of mission command, be it historical or how it should be employed or how it should be. Like Daryl Fawley, a major, wrote an essay on mission command in garrison. Chad Foster, who just left command of a cavalry squadron in the 4th Infantry Division and and applied all this this stuff, did a great job. Chad uh, Foster wrote an essay on training for mission command. And he also wrote the conclusion about emotional leaders are not good for mission command. Uh, the, great, the, the guys and gals that yell a lot and show uh, all kind of motion, a great conclusion. Uh, we also have uh, essays by uh, Second Lieutenant Regina Parker, who wrote on uh, redefining a renaming Mission Command. Uh, she just she got out of West Point last year, went to China on the symposium. She's been on the page a couple of years and contributed. Now she's going, as we talk, she's driving up to Boston to Harvard Medical School. Uh, we also have a Jerry Long, Major, who's an uh, infantry officer in the British Army, former paratrooper. Uh, he wrote a great essay on the 1940 campaign, the Germany against France, and how mission command applied. Uh, so, And then we have a, a, a Tommy from the Norwegian uh, the Navy, who just did his Ph.D. on mission command in the Norwegian Navy. Uh, we got a chapter by him. Fred Leland, a, a retired police officer wrote Mission Command and, and Law Enforcement in there. I'm trying to remember everybody. Uh, uh, Thomas Reebok wrote a great essay that we got permission from Armor Magazine to rewrite because it's why the basically the Army can't practice Mission Command. Uh, and then I wrote three chapters in there, one on uh, the German definition of Mission Command uh, and why the, the other essay is why the American Army is more French than German uh, based on all our adherence to uh, French doctrine in the the interwar period. And uh, then I wrote a chapter on educating for mission command, which you were part of at Fort Benning uh, two years ago, that we have a system which Fort Benning really liked until it got up to the commanding general's office, not General Scotty Miller, he liked it, but his chief of staff uh, didn't like it and barred me from the sixth floor at building four uh, for going around and trying to push it on people, even though everyone said, oh, you're the only one that knows how to teach this. So the U.S. military is an odd ball. Unless you have the criteria, you're a retired, G.O., or have a Ph.D., they don't they don't accept the fact that you can self-study and have self-discipline. Uh, like I've taught myself for the last 20 years German. I collect several German uh, books uh, by Moltke, uh, the Elder. Uh, general Field Regulations. I can read them. Uh, if I don't know something, I'll contact Bruce Goodmanson, who's a good friend of mine, or William S. Lynn. Uh, they always have helped me. And then I know several German historians who won't hesitate to help me at all. And they're on the, they're on the mission command pages as, as well. Uh, so we, we've got that coming out. Uh, I'm really proud of the essays that are in there. Uh, Grant Martin's another brilliant guy that helped me rewrite the introduction. Uh, Grant's a special forces lieutenant colonel that's going for his PhD. And Grant is, is just an outstanding intellect. Uh, so we have a lot of super people in the book itself that are that put these essays together. Uh, myself, Steve, and the the whole crew edited everything over and over and we self-published through CreateSpace on Amazon. And like I said, once it's cleared, uh, Steve Weber on Mission Command Culture is going to release the book and and go with it. And then we're, the book, all the proceeds after the expenses because it cost me some money to go through CreateSpace and have everything professionally done. Uh, After that's paid off, uh, we have Objective Zero, which is a very well-known uh, uh, charity that helps uh, veterans with suicide, dealing with suicide, they're getting all the proceeds. And all, all 12 and myself, all the authors, and Steve Weber, the other editor, agreed with that, that it would be a good way with the proceeds. So that's, that's a summary of the book right there.
0: Excellent. And when it is available, it's going to be available on Amazon? On Amazon, through both book, copy, and Kindle. Uh,
1: Amazon does a print-by-demand system technology allows them to do this so you uh, dan Grazer and pogo sent up a request for 100 books and they get the request and they have a machine that publishes the books right there so they don't publish a like i go i have my next book uh, on developing for mission command through united states naval institute press which is an incredible press but it's been slow two years in making it comes out next spring they they publish based on what they marketing says they need Amazon, on the other hand, going with the 21st century, says we'll publish on demand. And we really feel, the uh, 13 of us feel, that it'll be in great demand because, like I said, Daryl Fawley and Chad wrote, oh, how to deal with, how to train mission command and garrison. Questions that people have all the time. Uh, uh, are Grant Martin, how mission command needs to be in different categories to be used. Uh, Or Regina, you know, mission command... Uh, needs to be renamed because it's misunderstood. And then it goes down to uh, Thomas Reebok that says, these are the barriers that keep us from doing mission command. Hopefully someone at the top, General Mattis or President Trump, and I've worked with General Mattis numerous times, uh, including he had me at GIFCOM a couple times to speak. Uh, hopefully they'll read it and uh, say, hey, you know, we need to do this to the military to make us even better without raising the cost.
0: Right. All right. Well, hey, Don, I appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully you, uh, you, you sell tens of thousands of copies of your book. We, we do, too, because, again, it's not for us. It's to make people better. Well, that's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There, you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at @dan_grazier Dan and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.